0: everybody and welcome to the latest Mark Leverage podcast, this one being for December 2017. First of all, first things first, Merry Christmas. If you're listening to this at the beginning of the month you probably think that's a bit early but uh, just in case I forget I'd like to wish everybody out there, all the listeners, a very happy time and if you're working during December I trust that you've got as many bookings that you want and that when you eventually get to celebrate your own Christmas that you have a great time. Last month I was uh, fortunate enough to do a couple of lectures in quick succession. I first of all did one for the Cornish Magical Society who meet down near Truro in Cornwall and then a couple of days later I was up in Peterborough doing the same lecture for the Peterborough Society of Magicians and the lecture I was doing was eClub Pro Live where I take elements from my eClub Pro online club and take some of the effects, perform them and then fully explain them. And I've always said, and it's certainly something that I, that I stand by, that I absolutely love doing lectures. It's I don't know what it is about a lecture that I find so much fun, but I suppose I really feel in my element. In many ways, I've always been a teacher. In fact, right before I became a pro-magician, I was a professional teacher. I taught in a comprehensive school for two and a half years. So teaching has always been something that I've been involved with. And as I've been a lecturer now for 40 years... You can imagine the number of lectures, magic lectures, that I've done in that time. And I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to travel all over the world doing them. And as I love doing them, it's not a chore at all. But I was trying to think, well, what is it that I love so much about lecturing? I think there's something about uh, performing an idea that you've had and then being able to explain to people who actually want to hear about it the ins and outs of it. All the little ruses, the the reasons why you're doing things in the way that you do, because there's a certain satisfaction in in some tricks with the way they're constructed. The actual method itself is something that you get a real buzz from. And normally, when you perform for lay people, of course, you have to keep that secret to yourself, and that's fine because they react as lay people do to the actual magic, and that's what you're, you're obviously you want them to do. But it's something really nice about then having shown the trick itself to then be able to say, now, let me explain to you how I do this, because this is cool. And then being able to go into all the little bits and pieces that go to make it work. And when other magicians show their appreciation for the thinking that's behind it, or they see how useful that particular trick might be for them in their acts, and they say afterwards, I love that so-and-so trick you did, I'm going to put that in my act. That for me is absolute pay dirt. I love that fact that you explain something and other people see the value of it and immediately that they want to use it. The way I do lectures, in any case, it's it's like a show. Um, one of the things I've never very much uh, enjoyed is when other lecturers sometimes they they kind of walk through a presentation and then go through the handling in a very downbeat sort of way. And let's face it, teaching is, is teaching. It's a skill. And not everybody it makes a good teacher in the same way that not everybody makes a good children's entertainer or a good mentalist or a good cabaret performer. Not everybody can actually teach magic just because they can perform it. And so I have always wanted to make my lectures as much fun as possible. I know I I feel I can put across what I need to put across so that people can do the stuff. But I want the actual experience of watching the lecture to be fun. So I treat the whole thing, all two hours of it, like a huge show. And I get a real buzz off that too. I have loads of fun with the magicians. There are lots of bits and pieces of sort of gags and various other jokes and various other things which help the whole evening to whiz along, hopefully in a really enjoyable way. And I certainly have a great time. Uh, and that's another reason why I like the lectures because it's like doing a massive show. Not only that, but you're showing it to people who are interested in how it all works and who want you to be there. You haven't got to usually you haven't got to fight to get their attention because they've booked you. They want to see you. They want to see what you've got. So if I haven't been to your club recently, um, do get in contact because EClub Pro Live is a very interesting lecture i think it's got lots of varied magic to suit all sorts of different uh, performing situations all the magic is very practical there's virtually there are a couple of things that take a bit of bit of uh, practice and a bit of skill but most of it is some of it's self-working a lot of it is certainly um, very practical and will be able to be mastered by everybody except perhaps the, the the total beginner So get in contact with me and I'm happy to look at some dates and hopefully I can come and visit your club with that lecture soon. It's probably true to say that most of the people who perform magic for money do so as a uh, semi-pro. In other words, they probably have a full-time job and they use magic to supplement their income perhaps. They work in the evenings therefore and at weekends when they're not at work. And sometimes there are some pros, I suspect, who slightly look down on the semi-pro, which is very unfair because the semi-pro, I reckon, deserves a lot of credit because they are holding down a full-time job and they're trying to do magic as well. So for the pro, if he's been out late at night, then the chances are unless he's got something very early the next morning, which would be fairly unusual, the chances are he can probably sleep in a bit. There may be things that the pro needs to do, marketing and things like that, to do with his job. But there may be things that he can decide whether he does them or not. The semi-pro, who's going out doing, let's say, some table-hopping magic at a big dinner, he finishes at the same time that a pro would finish. So he'll finish, half past eleven, let's say, he drives home. He gets to bed at one in the morning. But of course, the next day he's got to be up and back at his real job, back at his desk or doing whatever job he does, feeling probably quite tired from having done the magic the night before. So in many ways, the semi-pro has a has a tougher time of it than the pro does. The semi-pro doesn't do as many shows, perhaps, as some pros do. Certainly the pros would hope that they did more because otherwise they wouldn't make a living at it. But the semi-pro nevertheless is using up his valuable spare time, family time, um, social social time. He's using it to do magic, but can't replace that time because he has a job. Whereas the pro can say, well, OK, um, I'm going to work Friday night, all day Saturday and Sunday lunchtime but I'll t- the wife and I perhaps will go out and have a meal on a Tuesday evening or we'll go out and have a meal uh, midday or, or on a Wednesday or whatever, perhaps. He's got a bit more flexibility, whereas the guy who's got a full-time job doesn't have that flexibility. So I, I take my hat off to some of pros. Uh, I, I think that the amount of energy that they need to work all day and then still go out and do a good show in the evening or at weekends uh, is amazing. And I think that the pros should give them a lot of credit for what they do. When you are opening the package of your latest purchase and you're looking at the the trick that you've bought, have you ever stopped to think about why the method that you're being supplied with is the method that's been chosen by the creator of the trick? I mean, you probably make the assumption that the person has chosen this because they feel it's the best possible method to achieve the, the magical effect. But actually, that may not be the case. Now, call me an old cynic, but I don't think that with marketed tricks that the best method is necessarily always the one that is offered to the purchaser. Because the the method that's offered to the purchaser is often the method that requires something to be sold. So in other words, if there's a trick that can be created using a little bit of sleight of hand, or the same trick can be achieved using a clever little gizmo, the chances are that the commercial producer of the magic will think, well, I'm not going to go down the route of the method that uses a little bit of sleight of hand, because I've got, apart from a little bit of information, I haven't got anything to sell. If I want to sell a physical product I'd better go down the route of the gizmo. Not quite as good, but it gets the job done, but it means I've got something that I can sell. And I think you can sometimes, when you have a little bit of knowledge about magic and you you know a lot of methods, you often get a trick and you look at it and you think to yourself, yeah, I can see why that's been chosen. I mean, it could be, perhaps not quite so cynically, it could be that a method for a routine has been used because the creator of the routine it's a method that he uses a lot and he feels comfortable with. You know, there, there can be certain moves which you, you really have got down pat and you can do them under any circumstances. And and I know I certainly do this. If If I get a routine and I look at it and the person who's writing up the routine suggests that I do something one way and I know a move that I'm more comfortable with, which will achieve pretty much the same thing, I'm going to ditch his move probably and use my own because I feel more comfortable with it. So naturally it stands to reason that when I produce a trick, I tend to gravitate towards tricks that use the the moves that I can do myself, because otherwise I can't perform the trick, so it makes a nonsense of it. So the point about talking about this though is that I think it's quite important that we, that we don't take methods that are supplied with, whether it's on a DVD or in a lecture or or online or as a marketed product or as a download, that you don't necessarily always just take it exactly as it is. But look at it and critically and say to yourself, OK, without diminishing or changing too much, if you like the plot of the trick, that is, without changing the plot of the trick too much and weakening it, is the method that, that I'm being provided with actually the right one to go with or is there a better one one I personally feel more comfortable with and I think a lot of experienced performers they they do this all the time they very rarely will just read up a a, a routine in a book or buy a packaged product and just do it I mean sometimes you do because the method suits you and it is possibly the strongest method that you know of to achieve the effect but there are many other times when it simply isn't and I think that the good performers are the ones who say, no, actually, not going to use that one. Let's use this one. And I think that's quite a good habit to get into. The only danger is, and I say, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think it's good to make sure that if you are going to do substitutions in terms of method or, or any sort of anything else to do, with it, that you're not changing the tricks so or that it's weakened. But provided you have plenty of knowledge, normally, nine times out of ten, it is possible if you feel it's justified, to swap some stuff over without diminishing the trick itself. So if you've got tricks that you've bought and you've looked at them and you've looked at the method and you thought, oh, oh, I can't really do that, and you've kind of put it away in the cupboard, get it back out again. Rather than making the assumption that the method that that the creator has used is the only one that is valid or possible, think to yourself, okay, I don't like this, this doesn't work for me, but what would work for me? And using what the um, person that has supplied the trick to you, st- using that as a starting point, then maybe you can go off at a tangent and find something that works for you and which will not diminish the trick, and which means you actually get to put it into your act or you get to use it. Back in the early 80s, I can remember ordering something from Martin Breeze. And when it came, there was a, the label, the address label, had a logo on it, and it was a very unusual logo which represented Martin Breeze International. It was I don't really know how to describe. it. If you haven't seen it, it's hard to describe what it was. It, almost like a, an eye socket um, is how I remember it. Uh, it was just almost like a little creature or something. Um, and although I didn't know what it was, the moment I saw it it used to make me think of Martin Breeze because this logo, this bit of branding was so unique. And at the time I was pretty much unaware of any other magic dealer having any sort of branded logo. And it struck me that logos are a great way to get recognition amongst magicians for your products. So I started off with a logo which was basically just um, a hand stretched out as if doing the multiplying billiard balls. And instead of having balls in between the fingers, I had the words, Mark, Leverage, Magic. That was my first attempt. And it was a bit amateurish, but when in the early days when I first started, uh, everything had that on it. And it was okay. But then uh, I, somebody did a little um, silhouette cutting of me. And I took that silhouette And I turned it into my logo. And what I loved about the silhouette was that while it was identifiable as me, the actual silhouette itself I was able to use for about, well, 30-odd years. And I'm still using it in a small way now. Because the silhouette itself doesn't age. I age, but the silhouette, which represents Mark Leverage Magic, doesn't. And when you think about big companies, car manufacturers and other big brand companies, they often have one image or a colour scheme or a font which you identify instantly with that company. You think of McDonald's big sort of red and yellow M. That symbol, as soon as you see it, you, you immediately, obviously, you know it's McDonald's. Even though they haven't got the word McDonald's written, you just know that it is. And there are lots and lots of other examples of, um, you know, Apple's Apple. There are so many things that identify a brand in a very simple graphic that instantly we all know what it is. Now, as magicians, I think this is something that a lot of magicians don't really think about and they don't use at all. But I think magicians can. For instance, for me as a performer, not as my magic dealer, because I have the logo uh, already for that, but I needed a logo a few years ago. I wanted to to establish myself uh, as a strolling magician, and I wanted a logo to represent that. So in the end, I settled on two things. One was a colour scheme of black and red, and the second thing was the initial M for mark and or magic, Made up of four aces, sort of resting on a table, leaning against each other to make the letter M. And I took that that logo and I put it on, uh, I on on, a, on my shirts. I put it on hats, um, sort of baseball hats that I wear from time to time. All my publicity website and everything else on the website is black and red, uh, compliment slips, headed paper, and so on and so forth. It's everywhere. And so it becomes hopefully synonymous. Um, As soon as people see that M and the colour scheme, then people locally hopefully will think of me. So it's a bit of a slow burn in in some ways. But what it does mean is that if you use um, a photograph, which most of us do as well, if you use a photograph... You have to be a little bit careful because obviously we all age, and some of us, our appearance changes quite radically, perhaps over, say, a 10-year period. And the photograph, unless you keep on supplying new photographs, you can never get one photograph of you established for any length of time because you keep changing. And so you don't look like that photograph anymore. So that's a useless piece of marketing if if people can't recognise you from the photograph that's supposed to be symbolising you. Whereas if you have a logo or you have a cartoon representation of you, then suddenly that changes. Because that cartoon, because it's not really you, it's not a photograph of you, it can represent you for much longer. It's kind of a playful image of you. And a lot of of children's entertainers, I know they do that. They have cartoony sort of versions of them. And they have colour schemes that they use. And I think that's really, really good because the local kids get to know what that graphic looks like and then they associate it with that particular performer. So if, you, if you've never thought about a logo before, you might like to give it some thought. What would represent you? What would be something different and memorable that you could do and which you could put on lots of different things? It has to be the right type of logo, one that stands out, whether it's in colour or black and white, whether it's got to stand out, whether it's blown up really big or whether it's very small on, say, a business card. It's got to look right no matter what. And if you can get something like that and then you start to use it and keep on consistently using on everything, you may well find that you, like the big brands, will get that sort of recognition too. We all recognise, I'm sure, that the internet has changed the way we purchase goods and services probably forever. The amount of variety that we can access online and the speed with which companies can deliver the products that we um, then choose is phenomenal. And we've got very used to expecting to order something one day and sometimes even getting it the same day, but certainly getting it the next day on a very consistent way. So we've all got very um, much turned on to instant gratification when it comes to purchasing things, and of course this affects magic as well. People want their magic tricks instantly for me selling all downloads. this is great because when people order something, they have the product any of my products immediately so that's fantastic if you know if you if you like to get your stuff quickly, there's nothing quicker than instant. But even for people selling physical products, if they get the goods out of the door quickly, then there's no long period of waiting for the thing to arrive. At least there shouldn't be if it's in stock. And so magicians have got very used to seeing a trick and having it or feeling they can have it pretty much immediately. And I think back to the early days before the Internet when... For instance, at Blackpool Convention, when they used to have about 40 dealers, of which I was one, in the horseshoe. And we used to set up our stuff. And then on the Sunday morning, they would open the doors at nine o'clock. And there would, you could hear a rumble as people rushed to their favourite dealer to find out what the latest thing was. Because a lot of the time, dealers would keep their new releases for the IBM Convention. And for Blackpool, I know I certainly did. I released material twice a year. I never released anything in between. And the reason was because these were the key moments that when the most number of people could get to see what you had that was new. And people got to like this because they went to the convention really excited, wondering what the latest miracles were going to be that they could purchase, they were, couldn't wait to get into the dealer hall to rush, literally rush some people to find out what the latest stuff was and to purchase it. There was like a feeding frenzy and from the dealer's point of view it was brilliant because if you had a really good selling trick you could sell an awful lot of them in a very short period of time over the counter. Dem the trick sell, then the trick sell. It was terrific. Now it's nothing like that because gradually as the internet has taken over anticipation of a new release has almost completely disappeared. Because we as dealers can supply information to the entire magical world the moment that it's ready you kind of think to yourself why, should, why am I waiting? I might as well let all my database know what I've got. And so as a result... There are the, the there 's no um long period of build up normally occasionally there are, there will be with a really major book, perhaps sometimes you do get that a little bit of hype and and pre publicity but for most of the time, certainly for tricks, it simply doesn 't happen the moment it 's ready bang it 's out there, and the publicity is sent out to everybody, and people buy straight away and Of course, this lack of anticipation this lack of of patience, waiting for a moment when these things are release, released. I think this is the reason why the dealer halls at most conventions are much quieter places than they used to be. It's simply because people have already bought. And unless the dealer has kept back some things which or has only just released them, may have advertised them but hasn't made them available and say, come to the convention and I'll sell them, or maybe because if a dealer is coming from overseas and people don't know what they've got, so then they're going back to the old days of not knowing, everybody else struggles to a greater or lesser extent because people have either already bought or they've seen and they think, no, I don't want that. So there's that excitement, that that frisson of tension, what the dealer is going to have pretty much doesn't exist anywhere anymore. I guess Blackpool, simply because of its size of the dealer halls, maybe there's still a bit of excitement there because they get a lot of overseas dealers, people that the average, certainly the average UK or European uh, magical customer may not have seen, people from the Far East and so on. But generally speaking, dealer halls are often very quiet and it's the reason I stopped going. It just wasn't worth my while anymore and this is while I still had physical products to sell. Uh, it just it just wasn't worth my while to be standing around with people who really weren't that interested because they'd already seen and either had or didn't knew they didn't want to buy the latest things that i had so i think it's it, in a way it's it's a pity uh, in other ways in the uh, magic has to move with the times we want instant gratification when we buy everything else so magic's the same and i guess you know what can you do about that nothing and i'm not suggesting we should but it certainly explains why um, at a lot of magic conventions the dealer halls are so quiet. One of the most popular close-up tricks with all close-up magicians is the card to wallet. And considering how many different versions of the car to wallet are out there for you to consider, sometimes it can seem a bit impossible to make a decision about which one to use. Actually if you, if you look at card to wallet generally there are two basic methods. One is a palm and load, and the other is a no-palm version. And within each of those two categories, there are lots of different variations. But those are the two main types, I would suggest. And I think if you're trying to work out, well, which would be the best one for me, is to look at the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages of the two different types. So I thought we could do that. So, for instance, a palm and load wallet that's great because the card appears instantly without any fuss inside the wallet. It really does cut brilliantly quickly to the chase. However, there is a stress involved because obviously in order to get that card into the wallet you've got to palm it and a lot of magicians are not confident with that. They feel that they, especially if they're working surrounded, they don't have the confidence to to do the slight effectively and smoothly. So if you're going to go down the no palm route, then you've got to, to realise that in order to get a card into the wallet, you can do it completely surrounded. There are, there are probably absolutely no angles. So that's great. But the disadvantage is, of course, that you, you are going to have to get the card into the wallet through routining. There is a certain sequence that you're going to need to go through in order to end up with that card inside the wallet. Whereas with the palm you can just go for the wallet, bring it out and there's the card in the wallet. With the no palm version you can't short track it. You've got to go through the required handling in order to make sure that the card ends up in the right place. The other thing about a palm and load is that it does allow for extra layers of impossibility. A lot of people like to use for instance a card that ends, ends up inside an envelope that's sealed in a wallet, which really, in a practical sense, you can only do with a palm and load. Of course, palm and load wallets, you do have to hide them away in your jacket or in your pocket. Uh, They can't be out in the open, whereas, of course, with a no palm, you can actually have the wallet out in view. You haven't got to have it secreted away and then suddenly bring it out. You can have it visible right from the start. So when a card ends up inside the wallet that's been in view the whole time, you could say... Well, that's impressive. That's even more impressive. But the only problem is, if you have the wallet out in view and you're doing a card trick, it could be that the spectators will second guess where the card's going to end up because you're fiddling with the wallet, so that you don't get the element of surprise that you do with a palm and load, where the wallet's out of of sight and you simply go to your pocket, bring it out, open it, and there it is. Course, trouble is, Palmer load wallets. Sometimes they have external slits you've got to hide, things like that. Slides you've got to fiddle around with to to, to reset them. Maybe that's uh, something that uh, could be a disadvantage. But they do have the advantage that you can Palmer load other things, such as coins, banknotes, pictures, and in one memorable case. I actually personally didn't think it was a particularly good trick, but a mobile phone ended up inside a wallet. So there are all sorts of different things that you can do with a card to wallet. Um, And when you're coming to make a decision, I think it comes down to how quickly do you need to achieve the trick? Does it want to be a spontaneous thing, or can you evolve a routine that you don't mind going through every time so you don't have to palm the card in? Do you want the wallet to be out in view? Can it be away in a pocket? Do you want to load anything else other than a playing card? There are all sorts of things that you can think about and then based on that start to make a decision. But I suppose the bottom line is if you're not prepared to palm a card in front of spectators, buying a palm and load wallet is a complete waste of time because you may think you're going to do it but when push comes to shove, you're probably not going to. In which case you'd be better off going for a no palm version and working around the restrictions that that might give you. So food for thought if you're in the market for a card to wallet. Right, that's another podcast finished. I hope you've enjoyed all the the topics that I've had a chance to have a chat with you about this month. As I said at the beginning, have a great Christmas and I will look forward to seeing you in the new year for the first uh, podcast of 2018. Bye for now.